What are you up to at the moment, Jimmy? Not getting caught. That was his response. <laughs> Not getting caught. Like, that's him just really taking the mick at that point, isn't it? He was quite old at this point as well. Like, that's him going, yeah, come on then. I'm, I'm 80 now. Like, come on. Not getting caught. That's what I'm up to. Hello, welcome back to Two Pals on a Pod, episode 27. This week, we're going to be talking about the Jimmy Savile documentary, as well as talking about a few sort of anecdotes and stories that we've heard, uh, given the fact that we're both from Leeds as well. Obviously, Jimmy Savile, one of the most despicable and horrific criminals of all time. And so there's lots for us to get into here, uh, having committed hundreds and hundreds of crimes, perhaps even up to a thousand over the, over the course of about 50 years. I mean, this one has been going on on and on for, for ages, hasn't it? And there's been recently a documentary on Netflix, which we're going to talk through, aren't we? Yeah, I struggle to think of a person, of, you know, a famous person in history where public opinion has changed so fast than uh than uh, our Jim, as he was called, wasn't he? He's was everybody's mm. uncle back in the day. You know, Jim will fix it. It was one of the biggest programs on, on TV. And he's given this platform to, to make it seem as if he was making kids' dreams come true, doing this like, kind of extraordinary charity work on a massive kind of scale. And then across the course of a, a few months, in I think it was 2009, wasn't it, when after he died and people started coming forwards, he became an absolute social pariah. And we kind of found out the extent of... Uh, what he was doing in his private life. And from then on, he's become a hate figure and a, a punchline for those of us that like dark humour. Mm, yeah, he's uh, he started off uh, his career in, in Leeds to begin with. And we're obviously both from Leeds. Those are the people that, that don't know. Uh, we're both from Leeds. And so we sort of have heard little stories here and there. I think most people, if you have family uh, parents or grandparents that are from Leeds you've probably got some story about him or something because generally they, they would have probably crossed paths at some point he was that well known uh, around Leeds and we don't really have that many famous people in Leeds aside from footballers and that kind of thing so he was mainly the the sort of sole famous person uh, at the time and um, he sort of started up by um, you know starting with discos in the 40s I think it was he start, first started doing discos and I think he invented um, twin turntables or something like that he was basically claimed that. to be the inventor of like the modern day DJ basically quite the accolade wasn't it I think he was uh, was he some kind of wrestler as well back in the yeah, day um, he loved a bit of wrestling the man loved a bit of physical touch didn't he but I think you know he kind of in terms of his early career I don't know much about it but I know for a fact that timing was quite important because we were transforming from kind of uh, it was an era of television in the 50s and 60s and he was quite savvy in front of uh, a camera obviously he wasn't the best looking bloke and you know even looking at pictures of him from back then from back in the day he never was particularly attractive he always looks a bit old yeah. very always with the gray hair well, this is the thing. He dyed his hair deliberately that colour, I think, to stand out better on TV, I think, to, to try and create an image, a brand for himself. So he deliberately dyed it that colour. And all, he dyed it lots of different colours. And I was speaking to my granddad and he was telling me that one time he dyed it one half white and one half black. That was quite a common one, which he did. And, and I think... Like I say, back in the, I think it was the 60s, my granddad used to go to a place called the Mecca in Leeds, which is like a famous dance hall. There was lots of different Meccas around um, the UK at the time. And I think Jimmy Savile was either a DJ there or a manager, something like that. And he was being paid £500 a week. Now, back in the 60s, that's a lot of money. In today's money, that would be £10,000 a week, basically. So he was on big, big money from very early on in his career. And uh, he started out on a lot of money. He'd walk into these dance halls surrounded by girls and everybody would know who he was. He was like this sort of uh, figure that everyone knew in the city. And he'd have his Rolls Royce outside. He'd have his chauffeur out there guarding it. 
And apparently as people would walk to the mech of this dance hall, people would jokingly pretend to sort of go and touch the Rolls Royce just so the chauffeur would go, you know, keep your hands off that kind of thing. They'd have that sort of banter and rapport with the driver. And I actually think interesting, I read an article before we came on. I think, I don't know whether it's the same chauffeur or a different chauffeur, but I think he was also arrested for being a pedo as well. And so there was quite a few people in and around Jimmy Savile who were also involved in these horrific crimes. Um, but I think it's really interesting how, in the 60s, this this sort of abuse just seemed to be sort of almost commonplace or almost sort of out in the open, uh, an unspoken sort of thing that everyone sort of knew was kind of happening. And I just think it's really yeah. weird how people like him were just allowed to, to have this sort of abuse of children. It's weird. It's, it's weird. And I mean, it went on for, for years, the 60s, the 70s and the, the 80s. But I think that from the from the very early days of his career you can see him planting these seeds because obviously to get away with such heinous kind of crimes what you need is a certain reputation and build that over time so that people that you're abusing maybe don't feel like they can come forward so that's quite a common theme with him isn't it there's this kind of the people yeah. that he'd abused thought that it would be absolutely futile to kind of come forward and tell their stories because they wouldn't be believed by juries and because you know with the lack of hard evidence people go because he was held in such high regard even from the the early days he stood out as a, as a dj because he was an ex-minor with a northern accent you know this kind of authentic persona a bit of an oddball yes but um, you know, warm and kind of trustworthy and, and natural. I think looking at those clips, even from his early career, he was a natural at just talking to people on the street or whatever. And then we saw that kind of develop over his career, but he maintained that reputation, which I think was quite important in him getting away with what he got away with for so long. And part of building up that reputation was him surrounding himself with people like various celebrities, like at the Mecca, for example, they would have the Beatles play there at times as well. So it was like a, you know, a, a place where lots of big bands would, would come and do performances at these dance halls and he'd surround himself within these celebrities and eventually would build his way up uh, through the ranks, I guess, and make it down to London. But what I thought was interesting is when he did start to build up his success, my granddad was telling me about um, this sort of lookalike Jimmy Savile in Leeds at the time, who basically go around pretending to be Jimmy, Jimmy Savile. <laughs> so he'd do all the hair, he'd be surrounded with young girls as well. And he, he just remember thinking this was just so sad. Like just seeing this guy try and pretend to be Jimmy Savile. I've never seen a tribute act age so badly than that. I hope that guy's not alive still. Right? He's not getting around Leeds pretending to be Jimmy Savile now. I think well, he'd get arrested for that, this, wouldn't you? This, well, this is the thing, though. I, again, read another article before coming on here, and it said there was a guy who based his image on Jimmy Savile, apparently was friends with Jimmy Savile, who also was found to be a pedo as well. And so this is what I mean. There was a whole group of them, this sort of inner circle that were doing these things back in the 60s. And sometimes with the same girls, by the way, these 14, 15 year old girls on the same night, some of them. And um, it was really weird how we'd almost have these sort of prodigy, uh, prodigies, is that the right word? Pros prodigy, prodigy, yeah. prodigy. So I, won't, I won't use fancy uh, words. You're my French words now. <laughs> That's, my That's my words. gag. That's my gag. I stick a French word in. I know. But you, he, this week. This he week. used to have these like people that he would have around him that he would almost bring up. And they were sort of DJs as well often. And so they were often <clears> sleeping <throat> with these 14, 15 year olds. And it's interesting how that sort of lifestyle lured in these young girls for them to be able to commit these horrific crimes. And it wasn't something that was exclusive just to him either. Like this was something that was happening for a lot of musicians. Like for example, there's a woman who came out and um, not too long ago and said that at 14, um, she slept with David Bowie and that David Bowie slept with her at 14 years old. And that she also slept with some other people that are actually alive today in these boy bands. And so this was a very common place 
thing by the sounds of it, this sort of abuse with musicians, DJs, celebrities in the 60s, which is really bizarre to think about nowadays, that just going yeah. uns unspoken. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, obviously the culture around it has changed now, but if you look at it logically back in the day and you think these DJs, Savile always spoke about how these groupies would throw themselves at him you know, various ages because they knew that he would have access to bands like, say, the Beatles and Rolling Stones and, and, and things like mm -hmm. that. And the same goes for musicians who are obviously idolised and worships in the way that they do by these young girls or whatever. And people went mad for the Beatles and bands like that back in the day. Like, it really was the Beatlemania and, and, you know, that kind of fandom was really, really kind of potent. And these DJs, you know, have access to people like that. And, you know, several later on started working on Top of the Pops. And I, I remember around the time shit hit the fan with Savile, people came forward about that. There was, I think it was Dave Lee Travis was a, another DJ from the, from the 60s and 70s um, who's still alive, um, who got implicated in, in, in these allegations and, and, and things like that. And you think that the things that we know and that we've researched are really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how difficult it is for people to come forward about, about you know, things like this. So it, was, it really was widespread. It's kind of bizarre to think about now, looking back, that that kind of fame and status afforded these people, you know, that kind of comfort, you know, they knew that they could do this and, and, and get away with it. And we see that with Savile and his demeanour, because it wasn't as if you'd look at him and think, you know, there's a man who's hiding something. I mean, even now I look back retrospectively and I think he's a bit weird and he's a bit eccentric, but the ego was there and he was confident. He wasn't exactly a shrinking violet. There was a man there, I think, that thought that he could get away with it. And, you know, I think if we look at it, he did because for as long as he was alive, I mean, there's a couple of things that we'd speak about later about him you know, being caught out, but not being caught out. Um, he did get away with it, didn't he? Because he didn't face the the, the retribution or the, or the consequences in terms of, you know, legal kind of justice, you know, maybe, maybe he went to hell if that exists. We'll establish that later. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't really count, does it? For those of us that don't believe in it, I think we'd have liked to have seen that kind of retribution. Um, hence, I think there's a lot of anger around about the situation, which we'll touch on later. It, it's strange to think of such a, a lack of accountability as well. Like, I, I really, I've got somewhere in my notes, I just put the words, like, a failed generation. Like, it's a, a complete failure yeah, to yeah. Have not hold these people up to, you know, account for the actions that they, that they did. Um, and it seems to just so widespread across lots of different parts of life. And you just sort of hope these kind of things aren't happening to the same degree nowadays and that there are that there is a bit more light being shone on these kind of things, you'd hope. Yeah, I think one of the funny things from the, funny as in a, in a crude, not funny as in a ha-ha way, the documentary well, was well, at, at the end of it. <laughs> it was at the end of it. Um, I think it was short to police said, oh yeah, they... Um, they conducted an internal inquiry and found that they were they they had, didn't had, didn't commit any wrongdoings. Like, so they're investigating their own shortcomings and finding that there were no shortcomings. When I think anybody else and like a neutral observer can look at the situation and go, I mean, there was some shady stuff going on in terms of you know his relationships with senior police officers and people coming journalists coming forward and saying I've got two people have come to me and said like Savile did this this on this date and this date and look here they are in the background on, on a recording from one of Savile's shows or whatever like this is not just out of the blue and there's two or three people to corroborate this and it mysteriously gets brushed under the carpet and back then it could I don't know why I don't know what's changed culturally I feel like today that wouldn't happen that wouldn't be able to happen I don't know whether it's because there's more checks and balances in place I don't know whether this is going to age terribly and in 30 40 years time when we're on episode 2000 or whatever we're going to look back at this and go that's aged terribly with everything that's come out recently but yeah. i'd like to think it's not i mean i'd like to think culturally we've moved forward with that 
I think it's a nice thought, but I still do think there's there's these kind of things going on. Unfortunately, I mean, you just got to look at like the whole Prince Andrew, Jeffrey Epstein thing. Like that's n- a little bit closer to us in in uh, time. It's not as far back as the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, so you know, I, I think perhaps it probably is, but maybe it's a bit more disguised than it once was, or something like that. It's, it's really difficult to say. But he used his fame and power to open up these doors into working at, uh, as a porter at Leeds General Infirmary, having access to these vulnerable people at the very different, various different charities. And it's strange to think that, you know, he how how on earth he was able to use. I, I appreciate he was a celebrity, a very well known celebrity, but even still, like. To think he was just given free reign. He was given an apartment at one of these uh, charities. Like he had his own little apartment block where he'd go and take certain people and abuse them. Like it's ridiculous, like how this was just allowed to happen. But people were so um, enamored by his celebrity status and by, by him associating with their charity or whatever it was that they just allowed it. They just gave him a key and just allowed him free reign of everyone. And even like things that are clearly suspicious, like this is not sort of. Um, you know, an odd comment here and there. He was taking thirteen-year-old yeah. girls, three thirteen-year-old girls, in the back of his car, just out of this sort of—I um, don't—I don't know. There was a mental asylum, whatever you want to call it. He was just taking thirteen-year-olds in the back of his car. Like, how much more obvious do you want to make the signs? Do you, does he need yeah. to wear a t-shirt saying "I'm a nonce"? Does he need that? Is, does, is that what he needs to? Does he need to I'm have not, that? Like, does he need to not, be waving a flag with it? Be like, yeah, look at me. <laughs> I can't testify the veracity of this image, but I remember when this all kicked off around him, uh, a lot of memes came out of it. And there was one of them, there's this picture you might have seen it, and it's him in a pair of swim shorts. And they're Speedo swim shorts, but the, the S has either fallen off or been photoshopped off. So it actually says pedo. And the caption was like, how can people that I've known back then? And he's there with this pedo, like, emblazoned across his, like, crotch or something. But you raise a, you raise a, a good point. And he's, I think one of the most uh, kind of reprehensible things, knowing all the, everything that we go know now, is the fact that he would go around joking about being in court or going around joking about how... When, when, when interviews would ask him about his, his personal life, I've never seen somebody ring fence their personal life so effectively and use kind of like distraction tactics. Like there was one interview where he was getting asked about his personal life and he just reaches into his pocket and gets a banana out and starts eating the banana. Yeah. And then suddenly we're talking about the banana. Um, but it's like the interviews would ask him about his personal life and he'd be like, oh, if you knew about that, if I spoke about that, I'd be in prison. But it's because he's joking about it that people don't think it's true. Because if it was true, you look at it rationally and you think, if it was true, he wouldn't go out on national television on, um, I think it was, he's been interviewed by Michael Parkinson and, and Parkinson was the biggest chat show back then. And I think it was Andrew but, Neely did an interview with as well. I think he, he was one that yeah, he did yeah. an interview with, but you just couldn't tell if he was joking, could you? Like it was almost like a double bluff that he was doing in front of people, this sort of mask as facade that he was putting on where you couldn't really get a straight answer from him. He was always sort of dodging or weaving every single question that was asked of him. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a very effective way of getting away with it because he has this reputation for being eccentric. That's the word that's used law and oddball and whatnot. And I think that when these rumours started popping up, as they did when he was still alive, because obviously famously Louis Theroux asked him about it when he when Louis Theroux did a, a documentary about Savile in the early noughties, asked him directly about this kind of these questions about him liking little girls. But I think a lot of people back then just thought he's an oddball, he's eccentric. That's what he's like, but he's not capable of doing that. He's just a bit weird and people are trying to jump on that or whatever. It didn't seem completely out of the blue that he would be accused of this, but people just thought, oh no, he's just a bit weird. He wouldn't actually do that, wouldn't actually go that far. As opposed to if he had this really polished public image, then maybe people would think, oh, you know, 
that doesn't compute with what I'm seeing. That's maybe there is something going on there. There's no smoke without fire type thing. He was just given the sort of the benefit of the doubt because he almost had this sort of classic northerner sort of way about him. Oh, I do, I, I do as I say and I do as I think. That, that kind, you know, that kind <laughs> of mentality. You know, he had that sort of thing which allowed a lot of what he said to sort of just go almost almost be dismissed because, like, it's like I say, you couldn't really tell if it was a joke or not. And so I, I often wonder, like, how did he get in with the royals? Like, I appreciate he was doing a lot of charity work, but. I mean, usually they associate with pretty clean-cut characters. He's not exactly yeah. the cleanest cut with some of the things that he was saying and the way he dressed and that kind of thing. But I guess, again, it just goes back to the culture of that time. They realised that we can sort of leverage his public image as a man of the people to bolster our own image. But at the same time, they're also enabling and sort of uh, enabling this abuse, essentially, by um, giving him some validity, being like, yeah, he's fine he's you know we're associating with him so he must be fine and it yeah. really sort of it was there to benefit both of them wasn't it really yeah he was he was kind of playing off this kind of warm trustworthy ex-mining kind of northerner who was a man of the people who could go up and to be fair he could talk to anybody on the street you know looking at these kind of vox pops that he conducted back back in the day but i was shocked to realize how how much the roles actually did rely on him as if he was some kind of PR expert when really he was somebody that was good in front of a camera um, and kind of knew what to say and could probably talk himself out of any situation he found himself in. But I know for a fact that the Royal family, even back then, because we're only talking now about the, the, the 1980s when him and Charles seemed to strike up quite a, quite an interesting kind of friendship where for me, the roles were reversed because you would think that Savile would crave the validity of being seen and being around the royal family in order to kind of cover his back. And we see that a bit, but from the, 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 the kind of pattern that we see in the, in the letters is Prince Charles, future king, going to Jimmy Savile and saying, do you think I should say this? Can you proofread this for me? Or where do you think I should visit next, you know, in terms of charity and things like that? And don't get me wrong, the money that he raised for the Stoke Mandeville um, spinal injuries unit was actually quite, you know, it was quite extraordinary, you know, he ran the length and breadth of the country or whatever and raised an awful lot amount of money in a short amount of time. And that's where the praise for him stops. But <laughs> that's why this is, this is, we're talking about this character who, like you said, did a lot, did a lot for charity and people wanted to be seen with him and wanted to be around him. He was very much the man of the moment because of that, because what you're looking at, you know, not knowing what we know now, you're looking at this benevolent guy who can help, virtually has the world in the palm of his hands. We can walk into a room and everybody wants to be around him. And yeah, he's a bit weird and he's a bit wacky, but he's not actually capable of doing what he actually did. And no wonder people wanted to be around him. And, you know, you see it with the royal family. You see it with Diana going to visit him herself, like without Charles. And you see it with with uh, with Margaret Thatcher, who was prime minister at the time as well. I think it's they ended up. I think Jimmy Savile ended up being almost like a marriage counselor to Diana and Prince Charles when their sort of marriage got on the ropes a little bit. They brought him in there as like a, a friend, sort of to go between the two of them. It's just ridiculous to think, really. Um, but he was like, like I say, asked for advice on speeches, asked advice, um, uh, asked uh, his advice on where to travel to boost morale, as Prince Charles put it. You know, because when he visits places, he naturally boosts morale. I guess. Yeah, bit of an ego clearly um, he then was asked um, by an interviewer what's your appeal to the royal family and his response was no comment no comment next no comment very much shut up straight away yeah. really didn't want to respond what's your appeal to the royal family interesting how he didn't want to respond to that at all shut it down so clearly no comment next didn't even dance around it just no comment next kept saying that over and over again 
And it makes, and you know, there are lots of conspiracies with the Prince Andrew thing and Epstein thing and Jimmy Savile's association with Prince Charles and Prince Philip and all that kind of thing. And it's things like that, comments like that, which make people think, could there have been something more sinister going on there? Could there have been, you know, something going on that he was helping facilitate children for them, that kind of thing. And those sort of comments really don't, don't sort of help him in that sense or you know it helps continue that sort of conspiracy i guess um but it, it's tough to know exactly what the extent of the relationship was was he just access to you know common folk the man of the people kind of thing yeah. was it about bolstering their image or were they getting something out of it it's really difficult to say you don't really have any other information outside of those sort of comments to go from really so it's difficult to know but i just thought it was interesting how there was also one letter that said, could you visit the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson, yeah. who is Andrew's wife, yeah. uh, Prince Andrew's wife, um, she needs your straightforward common sense. Is that a euthanism or is that actually <laughs> is that actually straightforward common sense? Is that him going, we need you to put in a place? Or is that him saying, can you just have a chat to her? She's struggling. She thinks yeah. her husband <laughs> might like children. Fancy having a chat, Jimmy. You know, you know something about that. Yeah, I think knowing knowing Fergie, Sarah Ferguson, as we do, I think that maybe she needs some straightforward common sense. I don't know why you go to Jimmy Savile for that though, but uh, yeah. you know, I can think of a few people I go to maybe before Jimmy Savile. But even with the um, with the, the the thoughts around him, you know, shutting that down, saying no comment, no comment. What you know, what the royal family want from you. I look at it now and I think maybe that's just him being him because he is weird. Like if he had this polished persona and he was shutting down questions or whatever, you'd think, oh. That's a bit suspect. That's a bit out of character. But he did have that side to him, didn't he, where he was erratic, sometimes for no reason. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he, he is hiding something within that kind of relationship with the royal family. But the reason we'll never know is because sometimes you can just put this kind of shady, shifty, erratic behaviour down to the fact that that's the persona he had. I mean, just look at him, you know, look at the way he, he kind of presented himself and also, um, and also he kind of by saying no comment next, he almost continues that respect for the royal family as well by saying no i'm not yeah. going to comment on them and so that helps maintain a healthy relationship with them as well which is is also another possibility and probably a more likely possibility um but i just thought it was interesting how the royals are asking for pr advice after major incidents i think that's partly because prince andrew came out do you see prince andrew's comments after the lockerbie bombing the things he said so basically said it happens this happens yeah. or statistically you know, this sort of stuff was bound to happen at some point what? Some nice people have just died. A plane's just blown up, Andrew. It's nice to know. It's kind of reassuring to know that he's always been a moron, isn't it? And yeah, he's still, he's still the queen's, the queen's favourite son. Yeah, I mean, very, very he strange. Look rather dashing back then in that kind of navy <laughs> uniform that he rocks up in. To be fair, but he, the fact that he had this kind of mob around him and the, the kind of debris from this aeroplane that being bombed over this Scottish village, and he, he was stood there going, "No, calm down, calm down." You got to think about the chances of this happening. I mean, you know, it's almost inevitable in a way, isn't I mean, it? But it happened somewhere. That bomb had only just gone off. He was already going in there going, well, it's only had a small impact on the local community. Oh, is it? Just a couple of hundred people dead. Yeah, just a small impact on, on the local bodies, people. Bodies falling out the sky. and arms still body and parts coming, coming down. Um, although a man that didn't mind a severed head is uh, Jimmy Savile, isn't it? Yeah, that was, that was an interesting anecdote. But how is a man of this stature, why is a man of this stature going to road traffic collisions, because this is what happened. He went to a road traffic collision with some paramedics or something, turned up, and there's the car crash there, and there's a headless guy there, and everybody's going, oh, where's the head? Where's the head? And Uncle Jimmy had crawled under a lorry or whatever. 
with this come out with his head as if he'd lost his football under a car or whatever and he's had to get it out and retrieve it but, firstly what is he doing there secondly why is he parading around a severed head and why is nobody looking at this going yeah a bit weird, bit weird yeah I mean it's again one of those things where once again you can't tell whether he was saying that as a bit of like a funny story to try and sort of you know have a laugh or whatever or whether he was actually being serious like, it's difficult to tell but certainly doesn't seem beyond the realms of possibility uh, but with Andrew I thought it was interesting how um the lack of empathy like how can you be so completely lacking self-aware uh, self-awareness to go into a you know in front of cameras in front of press at that age and be like yeah it's only a small it's, it's only made a small impact on the community like it's you know nothing nothing big statistically it was bound to happen really you know at least it's not what's happening in america right guys yeah like <laughs> how can you have such little self-awareness i appreciate he's being brought up in the royal family so there's yeah. some sort of cocooning if you like in that sense but to have such little self-awareness to say it just makes me wonder like how thick is he like do you know what I mean like thick and, and it's exactly how we ended up with the Prince Andrew interview I mean we've already done a podcast about that you can go up listen to that another time yeah, listen, listen, yeah, but, but it's like it just it makes me laugh like how little self-awareness that guy can possibly have I just it doesn't even seem like he's a real human at this point um no, but the the uh, handbook no, something out of a, a sitcom then like how not to respond to uh to some kind of disaster but I mean if if Savile had actually been advising them on PR at that point, I think Andrew would have rocked up and made a joke about fondling a young girl's breast or something. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what Savile did, but nobody took notice of it. And he was out there talking about 13, 14 year old girls or ladies. Maybe in that's this what manner. they wanted advice about how to sort of, you know, openly <laughs> joke about fondling kids and get away with it. Maybe that's get what away with it. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> it's interesting how he gave them a five page handwritten PR handbook in 1989 that was titled guidelines for members of the royal family and their staff i mean he's a dj bearing in mind at this point a dj and he said there must be a major incidents room for the queen to remain informed like why is he giving out advice to the royals a major incidents room this is a he's a disc jockey what, what does he know about a major incidents room why is he giving them a guidebook a handwritten five-page guidebook what's going on his expertise are limited to mining, to <laughs> wrestling, and to the what was it two disc turntable, yeah, or whatever. I'm giving off big granddad energy here. I'm talking about technology, two disc turntable, something like that. That's what he knows about, and young girls. Mm. What he doesn't know about is how to respond to major incidents. But once again, it's not him just kind of sat there thinking this. I love the fact that this whole booklet was handwritten, even like the front cover. It was handwritten that we, we got a glimpse of it. it was he handwritten. made an effort, fair play yeah, to him. Put the, put the effort in. Handwriting is not too shabby. Mm. And he's, he's sending it off to them. But why are the royal family going to him? It's not him just sat there in his in his penthouse, you know, just dreaming up, yeah, oh, five points on how the, the royal family should respond to kind of incidents, you know, out of his own delusion. They're coming to him and feeding his ego and saying, yeah, Jim, what do you think? What do you think we should do? But with all no, their just resources because, just because... and all their staff, like surely they'd have better, more qualified people to have access to. You know, they could surely just ring up a world leader and be like, what do you do in major incidents? Yeah, we'll do the same. Bye. Completely. Ring, up, ring up Maggie. What do you do, yeah. Maggie? Ignore, ignore it. Pretend it hasn't happened. <laughs> but no, it's the fact that they go, I don't know whether he's got this persona of being a problem solver because he presented Jim will fix it which mm. was a TV show, make, make kids' dreams come true, basically. But look at look at it practically. He's not working on the logistics behind that show. He's merely fronting it, and he's attached his name to it. People behind the scenes are, you know, making kids' dreams come true. Some interesting dreams featured in that documentary as well. I want to be an Indian princess as a, as a you know, lovely one. I want to fly with Peter Pan. 
but it's not actually Jimmy Savile making these things happen. It, it just makes me laugh that Charles and Diana were sat watching it thinking, God, he, he's a problem solver. Is that Jimmy, isn't he? You know, get him he's on the pulling, phone. All, pulling all the strings. Jim will fix it, Diana. Come on, get him on the phone. <laughs> He'll fix our marriage for us. Get him on the phone. <laughs> Come on, let's call him up. They took it a bit too literally. It is yeah. a TV programme, Charles. He's not actually flying, this kid. He's not actually Peter Pan. He's on strings. He's probably, probably got fuck all to do with it, hasn't he? He's, probably, he's just yeah. presenting the show. Ironically, he had the roles on strings as well, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the thing that sums up uh, like Savile's relationship with the establishment, for me, was the fact that there was one uh, one girl, she wanted to be a policewoman, didn't she? And she wanted to patrol Downing Street for a day or whatever. And Thatcher's car pulls up. She's prime minister at the time and gets out and the kid opens the car door for Thatcher and they go and knock on 10 Downing Street, home of the prime minister, home where, you know, Thatcher's home at that time. And as they go to knock on the door, Savile opens it as if he yeah. lives there, as if he's been waiting for them to get back off holiday for two weeks and they set his feet up. Like that kind of sums up in a little clip how he really did have his feet under the table and he had them all around his finger didn't he? I thought it was quite an interesting little clip that they showed there and you can't imagine that a cele- I'm trying to think of a celebrity now that would be able to do that in the same way I mean it's, there's there's a few that are sort of quite in with the establishment a little bit like someone like a David Beckham maybe something like that but he was not a DJ yeah. do you know I mean he wasn't right. into the en- entertainment he's not so public facing he's more private he does do the public yeah. appearances so he, even David Beckham wouldn't be the sort of person that would get in with the establishment and do something like that. I'm trying to think of a name nowadays in the UK. I don't think we really have one now that is so famous that would be able to be in there with the establishment like that, with the royals and things. No, no, it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? But as I mean, well he, said that, the people. he said that, that, that the key to his success in terms of the establishment and, and Thatcher and whatnot was that he refused to be political. And that's why Thatcher invited him around for a Christmas dinner once. Mm. Which is interesting. But he wasn't political. And that meant that he was palatable to everybody because he was, because he acted like everybody's uncle. Yeah. The uncle that, you know, maybe stays in the corner at, you know, family gatherings at Christmas or whatever. And, you know, your mum might say, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't go sit on his lap. Don't go sit on his lap or whatever. But he but was that, in- that, kind of, that kind of familiarity and his apoliticalness. So, uh, so to speak, made impalatable to everybody, even Margaret Thatcher, whereas now everybody's a bit political, I think. Well, it's, it's interesting side. because he said he was apolitical in, in the documentary, but he did actually, I think he was actively trying to get in with Thatcher, I think because Thatcher likes him so much and ended up pushing him towards a knighthood, I think, as well. And it's interesting, oh, yeah. upon getting that knighthood, he said in an interview, getting a knighthood was a relief because of all those nasty rumours a relief. He was relieved by it. He knew he was going to get away with it at that point, didn't he? He knew he was going to, he had his final layer of protection now of the establishment, the royal family. Yeah. He'd got his knighthood. That was it. Sir Jimmy now. And he was going to inevitably just get away with these crimes as a result of having that protection. Yeah, I think his, his support for Thatcher, I think, can be put down to the fact that he had struck up a friendship with her. And I think that mm. she, uh, her kind of way of, of signaling that was the fact that she did keep on pushing him year on year for a, for a knighthood. And they kept on saying no because of these rumors. Cause so even in the eighties, they're out there, these, these nasty rumors. And then eventually they buckled and gave him a, a, a knighthood, but it was that layer of protection that he wanted, wasn't it? And I, he joked just after getting it, uh, oh, they can't take it off me. And it's, it's true. They didn't. And I don't think they can. So I think, is he still Sir Jimmy, which is, it seems a oh. bit, I think they did strip it from him eventually, I think. Is that is that possible? I think I'm so. I'm not sure if that's possible, but I hope they did. But it was that layer of protection that he that he just needed, really, wasn't it? And I'm surprised that people that 
had been through what they'd been through as victims didn't look at that and they weren't incensed by it to a level that they'd come forward it just goes to show you the kind of deep psychological scarring that going through something like that can have because you'd imagine that they'd see that and they'd be incensed because there was a massive injustice because Mm. it's essentially an act and it's an act in which he's been knighted for and he's milling around with the royals and with the prime minister and with people like that and and when Nobody you think you're the only the one truth. as well, when you think you're the only one, it doesn't. You don't have that sort of comfort in numbers kind of thing to step forward. Exactly. It's you. You just think, oh, you're the 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 kind of the exception, not the norm, or whatever. Because and that's because he carefully cultivated this public image. I've got no doubt that those victims did think that they were the only ones, because everybody would be like, no, Savile's not capable of that. He wasn't walking around, was he, with his pedo speedos on or with his no, non-flag or anything like that, which is a massive shame for every police force out there. Um, but his personality and his connections in, within the kind of establishment did afford him this level of immunity, I would say. I'd say it's immunity because, mm. I mean, you get to the point in the even in the, the 2000s where he'd have, what was it, the Friday morning club or something yeah. like that in his penthouse, which is, you know, you get together with your mates on a Friday morning and drink, which I can get behind that, to be fair. Good idea. I like that on the Friday morning. You like that, yeah. You have a little organised sort of brunch or get-together, a little coffee, that kind of thing. Um, but, lovely, not with the pedo, though. Not with the pedo. Yeah. <laughs> not with the pedo. One thing I thought was interesting, um, and then we'll, we'll talk about the um, Broadmoor and, and the police uh, thing as well, because I've got a, another couple of anecdotes uh, around these things. Um, but what, what I thought was interesting was he was often called uh, St. Jimmy, wasn't he? He was often called that. And a little weird coincidence, and maybe it's a coincidence, I don't know, but Epstein's Island was called Little St. James. St. Jimmy, St. James. It's weird how those two things, just a coincidence, clearly, but... I was born at a hospital called St. James's in Leeds, so is that another coincidence? That's another they better not have named it after him. No, they wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have named it after him. Um, <laughs> I think they did name one of them after him, I'm pretty sure. They were named, and then they had to change they were naming, it, obviously. They were naming everything after him uh, around the time that he was still alive. A bit much, really, wasn't it? Dying. It was, wasn't it? Like the Jimmy Savile Business Park and things like that. Really? Imagine if they renamed, yeah, imagine if they renamed Ellen Road, like the Jimmy Savile oh, Stadium or something like that. After, Savile Stadium. After Leeds' his finest son. Um, <laughs> just thinking about. <laughs> Imagine that having that a Savile stand. Oh, Epstein and Savile on the same island would, would would be quite. I wonder simple. if they ever crossed paths. Oh, that that'd be interesting. I wonder. Are you imagine they probably probably would have maybe. I don't know because I mean Epstein was in with some of the UK uh, people, Glenn Maxwell and all that. Yeah, I mean that is uh, Epstein's mo was you know. Well, Ghislaine Maxwell's MO was providing young girls and, and boys for pedos. I mean, yeah, you'd think that. I don't know. It's, it's certainly a matchup for the ages. All we know is that they're together now, rotting in hell. So that's what mm. But yeah, it's interesting how many of these sort of types of people were in high society back then. And you wonder how many are in high society now, because there's either there was a, there was a person, uh, I think it was the News of the World or The Sun, I can't remember. He ended up being a pedo, and I forget his name, but Jimmy Savile was really. Close with I don't want to libel. Is it Max Clifford? That's it, Max Clifford. Max Clifford, yeah. So Jimmy Savile would turn up to his offices, Max Clifford, and try and get certain stories in the papers. And I remember you see it in the Louis Theroux documentary. I'm pretty sure is it Max Clifford? I think it is. Max Clifford's like PR guy, yeah. I feel like it might have been. But anyway, you'd see Jimmy Savile turn up at his offices trying to get specific stories in the papers or keep certain stories out. And Simon Cowell be doing the exact same. He had a close relationship with Max Clifford. 
I'm pretty. Yeah. I just want to quickly Google and make sure it is Max Clifford, just so because it, it's going to annoy me if we get that wrong. Well, it'd be annoying if we got the libel suit on us as well. Yeah. <laughs> <It's not> much... <laughs> he's dead now anyway, so it's fine. He's arrested on suspicion of sexual offences as part of Operation U Tree. But I'm pretty sure there's another name. I feel like there was another name. What, like a, getting... an, ed- an editor? Yeah, Ooh. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was Max Clifford. But I feel like was there was a, another name. Clifford was, a, was a, the PR guy. Clifford was connected with uh, Simon Cowell as well. I know that. Yeah, maybe it was Max Clifford. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, the, we should now, we should talk about um, Broadmoor as well because Savile ended up having the run of Broadmoor basically, just being able to go and you know hang around with murderers, serial killers, anyone he wanted to. He was given this sort of access uh, to one of the on-site apartments as well, and he became friends with the Yorkshire Ripper, which is an interesting one because he was interviewed and questioned over the murder of um, a few girls who are later attributed to the Yorkshire Ripper. He was actually interviewed with Jimmy Savile about these things. Over um, the murder? Yeah, he was He was interviewed. He was actually one of the early suspects that the public brought to the police, being like, oh, we think it might be Savile. Um, it turned out, obviously, it wasn't. And then it was the, the Yorkshire Ripper, who I forget his name now. What's his name? Peter Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe, that was it. Um, but interesting, he was interviewed uh, and questioned about it because... Two of the bodies were found really close to Jimmy Savile's apartment in Leeds, so sort of behind know. in like the sort of bushy areas of um, behind his apartment, and um, it was a late- picnic. Yeah, not far away from where we had a picnic, we had a picnic, picnic there, didn't we, last in, in summer? In Hailstone, yeah. yeah. Um, good times, good times. <laughs> not the worst um, thing to happen in that park, thankfully. Definitely not, definitely <laughs> not. Far worse things. Um, but yeah, it was interesting how he was interviewed and questioned. I think he even had um, his dental records were checked in order to try and match them against um, dental records that were found on the bodies of some of these women. And so it was interesting how the police were sort of on to him for some of for some crimes, but just the wrong crimes. If they put some effort and energy into getting in for the other crimes, then perhaps we wouldn't be sat here doing this podcast. But it's interesting how he became friends with the Yorkshire Ripper and introduced um, Peter Sutcliffe to Frank Bruno. Do you remember? Have you seen that picture before? I've never seen the picture. I know Frank Bruno's a boxer. Um, yeah. So I think Frank Bruno has been showed round. I don't know if it was Broadmoor or something. He's been showed round somewhere unaware that he was about to shake hands with Peter Sutcliffe and this famous, quite infamous picture of him shaking hands with the Yorkshire Ripper with Jimmy Savile in the background with his cigar. Like, I think he deliberately set Frank Bruno up, to be honest. I think that's what it was. (laughs) Yeah, there's like a pretty infamous picture now of that. And um, I think Frank Bruno has since spoken about it, just be like, I didn't know that this guy was Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper from Broadmoor. I didn't know that's who I was shaking hands with. You wouldn't know, would you? You would not know what he'd look like. About you. Presuming it's about 10, 15, 20 years after, you'd have no idea what he would look like anyway. And the fact that it came all came out about Savile, obviously, since then, means that that picture for Frank Bruno is an absolute PR disaster. Yeah. That's it, like, I'll check that out. I'll yeah, it's out. quite a, a quite an infamous uh, picture, is that one. But I thought it was interesting how two bodies were found uh, near his apartment. And it has sort of raised questions as to whether Savile was actually involved, perhaps, in any of these murders. Is that why he got so friendly with uh, Peter Sutcliffe after he got locked? up at Broadmoor and there are some again uh, conspiracy theories or theories that he may have been involved in that and there were actually at one point I think the police were actually looking for a second suspect who may have been involved in one of those murders so it makes you wonder maybe it was just coincidence that it was near one of the apartments um, but it's interesting how the police also knew that Savile used sex workers as well and so we're using that as kind of like well he uses sex workers a lot. That's who Peter Sutcliffe's targeting. So, again, it was another one of those sort of connections that were, were trying to be made back then. Yeah, this is a bit weird, isn't it? That, that this was not not common knowledge, but it was known by enough people that that 
there was kind of smoke coming out of that fire, so to speak, with this kind of with this kind of is linked to this kind of case, you know, and it's common knowledge that he uses sex workers and yet he's still allowed to present on, on kids TV. And it's kind of unthinkable these days that anything like that would be kept hush hush. But obviously, like we said, like maybe next week, there'll be a story coming out about a children's TV presenter. It won't name one. Don't, don't want to libel anybody. Don't yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Bleep it out. <laughs> but you know obviously maybe maybe we're ignorant of that I don't know but it's completely unthinkable to me that that would happen today and the fact that the police kind of knew that I think obviously he knew tactically that that he needed friends in high places to get away with what he what he needed to get away with um whether he was and it, it, I think it speaks to kind of like the non-exhaustive nature of the list of his crimes that we can't really sit here and say that he wasn't kind of connected mm. to a couple of murders in one of the biggest kind of uh probably the most notorious um, serial killer in British history, Peter Sutcliffe. And to think that somebody that is a charity figure, so well-connected with the royal family, who are seen as untouchable, could also be connected with the Yorkshire Ripper. It speaks to how bizarre a character he was, and, and tactful. Yeah, and also these types of people, these horrific people who do these sorts of crimes over such a long period of time, the general trend is that these things escalate and that they get more violent or more brutal or more frequent um, or there's usually an added element in order to do these crimes for 50 years. It doesn't remain the same sort of crimes generally um, because to the person that's doing them, it's seen as um, almost like it's stale to sort of do the same crimes for 50 years kind of thing. So they have to try and uh, sort of um, make it uh, more and more horrific, basically. And so it's not beyond the realms of possibility. I don't think that he could have, you know, murdered someone. In fact, I did remember seeing somewhere that there was, I think this is a separate thing to the bodies that were found near his apartment. I think there was a body found, and it's never found out who did the murder, but it was found near where he used to take his caravan on holiday, I think, something like that, in a nearby river or something. And it was never found who uh, did uh, commit that crime, I think. So there's lots of different things that, that do make you wonder. He was obviously big into wrestling, as we said earlier. And so he had that physical um, physical attributes. He used to compete in, in wrestling. And so clearly physically capable um, of being able to dominate somebody, I guess, in that sort of sense. Yeah, and obviously he did have this side to him as well that somebody described him as being Jesus crossed with Father Christmas, you know, which is ridiculous, isn't it? Even in hindsight. But he did, he conducted an interview, didn't he, in which he called himself, I think it was a ruthless and calculating and devoid of any feelings. And there was this common theme in, in interviews about his private life that he would just say that he had no feelings, which is the sign of a, a psychopath, isn't it? Yeah. Being devoid of feelings. And to have him coming out and saying that he was ruthless and calculating is a power move in two senses. Because number one, he's kind of nullifying these rumours about him saying they're not true, but I've got this kind of this freaky side to me. And secondly, it serves as a warning to victims out there that if you do want to come forward about any of these allegations or whatever, I'm ruthless and I'm calculating, I won't just roll over and take them and you know hold my hands up and say, you got me. There will be some pushback and it's quite ominous because you know you've got these victims that are seeing him on the tv with these well-connected people and then you've got him coming out in the press saying that he you know is a very meticulous man you know capable of doing this and that and don't be completely fooled by the the uncle jimmy kind of one of the lads kind of persona it's, it's quite interesting that, that he did have that side to him and he kind of paraded it every now it's, and again it was almost like a godfather sort of mentality that's almost like a gangster type thing that he had where it was like 
um, you know, don't push back too much, like you say, because otherwise there is going to be consequences. And having that sort of hanging over people's heads is really what prevented people from wanting to come forward. There was a fear there. Not only was he powerful, but he was also quite threatening, even to some of the police officers. Um, as we'll talk about later on in one of his interviews, he was quite threatening. He was threatening to um, journalists and that kind of thing. I remember he did um, an interview in his dressing room with a journalist and he was on a mattress in his dressing room with a 14-year-old girl who was going through chemo at the time. She was bald and she had cancer. And um, he was doing this interview just casually in his dressing room with this um, interviewer, this journalist. And after they finished the interview, the journalist walked down the corridor. He followed the journalist, basically grabbed the journalist's arm and said, if you mention that 14-year-old girl in your story, there'll be consequences that'll be the end of you kind of thing and so it was a very threatening atmosphere that he created but it was again done in such a way where it didn't seem to it didn't seem to be that suspicious because it never really got out you saw the front facing the public facing side of him but not that sort of thing which would be reserved for people who might threaten him as being this man of the people and his sort of you know, public image, I guess. Yeah, it's it's his image is something that that continues to bewilder me and probably you too and anybody that wasn't around at that time because it's so easy to look and go, he dressed like that. He basically, you know, he made jokes about being a pedo. He dressed like a pedo. Couldn't have been any more like on the nose. He acted like a pedo or whatever. I mean, there's one where he was, you know, he conducts an interview with somebody that was playing squash or something and they said, oh, have you ever played squash, Jimmy? And he said, no, but I've tried to squeeze and press and push yeah. and things like that, making sexual kind of jokes. And like he made a joke about how uh, he's not going to retire at 65. He's actually going to start work at 65 as a caretaker in a girl's school. So, I mean, that yeah. that is a, a joke about, committing paedophilic acts it was clearly a route not just a rumor but it was sort of almost known by a lot of people by the sounds of it and so for the bbc and other people to say that they had no knowledge of these things or that it wasn't a cover-up I, I just feel it's a bit ridiculous to be honest i think he was made to be untouchable and uh, which is probably a bad choice of words to be honest but he was sort of <laughs> put up in this sort of um godlike figure almost like i say he was given this sort of saint jimmy name yeah. kind of thing and that elevated him him to a level where he was this sort of person he was teflon and i think it was interesting I, I remember seeing a youtube video somewhere um can you remember the name of the musician that got locked up again um under operation U tree for being a pedo um he was like a kid's presenter but also a musician i thought it was bill Oddie, but it's not it's a different name rolf harris it was rolf harris Melody's the one that looks like Rolf Harris, but didn't yeah. commit anything similar. You know, for anybody yeah. listening, this makes the cut. Then Melody's the bird watcher. Bird yeah, watcher. exactly. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Rolf Harris. Rolf Harris. Was looked- Rolf Harris was the one that was convicted. Okay, um, but Rolf Harris, interestingly, and again, I, I saw this on a clip on YouTube. It's unbelievable. It's from a while back, and the interviewer says to Rolf Harris, um, "I just wanted to ask you, why, when you meet Jimmy Savile, do you kiss him on the ring?" Like that, that was his greeting. It wasn't like a um, sort of jokey thing. Every time he'd meet Jimmy Savile, he'd kiss him on the ring like he was the Pope. You know how they kiss the Pope on the oh, ring yeah, and that kind of that. thing. Like a and deferential in- gesture. It, and it's interesting how Rolf Harris was locked up for that reason. And Jimmy Savile was obviously found to be a, a paedophile eventually. And I just yeah. think that in itself is interesting. Was he this sort of Pope of pedos or, or was that a thing? Is that a bit too outlandish or, or what, what was going on there? Because that seems a very unusual way to greet somebody, even a yeah. friend. It seems very unusual. Yeah, and he was he was good friends. Jimmy Stowe was good friends with Gary Glitter as well, who was also yeah. in the similar, in the pedo game. And there's there anecdotes from, from women who were on whichever show 
Savile was presenting at that time and Gary Glitter kind of happened to be on there and both men have done these committed these crimes against these kind of kind of women but it, it's bizarre isn't it that with the BBC giving him that standing on Jim will fix it he'd have like young women writing to him saying please can I come on your show and can I meet Gary Glitter pop star why wouldn't you want to meet him you know, make my dreams come true so they're actively look like walking straight into an absolute bear trap the dynamics of it are, are completely shocking I mean Savile wrote a, an introduction didn't he to a book about the dangers of strangers and stranger danger and things like that. I could not think of a man less apt for uh, for writing that, but because he was so prominent on kids TV and it did seem like he was making their dreams come true and whatnot, when really he had, he had access to this kind of plethora of children, 250,000 letters a year they'd get uh, to Jim will fix it. So he had access to this plethora of kind of kids that would walk straight into the trap. And I've, there's no doubt in my mind that that him and Glitter were in it together. No doubt, yeah. because I mean, I've heard I, those stories. I think you can also see that in some of the clips in the documentary as well. I think there's a moment where Gary Glitter's been interviewed by Jimmy Savile, and they're almost talking about, oh, what, what he gets up to, that kind of thing, and the ladies in the in the audience. And and then Gary Glitter goes, um, no, I won't, I won't tell you, I won't say. And then J- Jimmy, you can actually hear, I think it's on the subtitles, you can see on the subtitles, Jimmy says, um, yeah, don't don't tell us about that kind of thing. Like You can tell he, he wants to change the topic before they go too far here, because he's worried that Gary Glitter's actually going to say something. And I've also seen in some articles that they did both... Um, uh, assault and abuse children in Jimmy Savile's dressing room. Apparently, yeah. the, the same the same people. So they were clearly both well aware of what they were they were up to because they did it together sometimes. And just to think that these things were happening um, behind closed doors, and um, you know that that it may even be happening today. I mean, you hope it's not happening today, but you know you do sort of wonder what could be going on now. I guess. Um, there were so many just messed up things that you just sort of wonder was this all covered up we talk about his connections with the police in this Friday morning club mm. to have off-duty police officers turning up for a chat and a coffee and a drink or whatever every Friday you can see that he was trying to bring the police in journalists in the royal family he was trying to get everyone around him for, for protection wasn't he that's what he was using them as if it's the, the police they can't come after me if it's the royal family they give me this kind of immunity you know this kind of reputational boost and and whatnot it's made easier by the fact that there was a culture of sexual abuse at the time even in the police even in the police forces Uh, i'm not saying west yorkshire police specifically at that time but it's come out since in you know previous years that across the police forces in the uk there was this kind of culture of taking advantage of vulnerable people and whatnot so it's no surprise to me that not only did they not bat an eyelid they knew about these allegations and it didn't kind of colour their perception of of Savile because it was so normalised. So I think if you think now, you wouldn't catch a police officer off duty going round to a suspected pedo's house because they knew, they knew, the police officers knew, the West Yorkshire police were well aware uh, and they'd still frequent Savile's kind of penthouse or whatever. I think now you wouldn't get that as much. You wouldn't get a police officer being taken under the wing of a suspected pedo, even if, didn't actually turn out to be a paedophile, but because then there was this culture of kind of normalization that, you know, even if it is true, it happens. And, you know, it's the, it's just what the establishment did back then, which is, it's, it's a crazy thing to, uh, to, to kind of think about. Well, uh, definitely. In- interestingly, I, um, a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. Don't, don't know them personally, but I know a few people that, that do, um, they were one of the police officers that used to go round every Friday 
So, yeah. Yeah, this, this is why I wanted to get on, onto this topic. And um, like I say, I don't, I don't know them, um, but I have heard from other people. And uh, apparently they were hounded by journalists after Jimmy Savile's death and everything that came out. And um, he basically claimed that he knew absolutely nothing about what was going on and ended up um, having been hounded by the, the press. I think it may have ended up getting one winning damages, I think, as a result of that. Uh, mm. I'm not quite, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I know that he was hounded by the press for it. Um, and he was sort of made to seem like he had some knowledge, which he claimed not to have. I don't know if he did or not, but he, he, I think even in one of the interviews, Jimmy Savile said, you know, I've given all these ridiculous letters to the police and we have a laugh about them every Friday kind of thing. So it's clear that they knew that these letters, these sort of claims are being made, isn't it? I don't think you can say that they didn't know. Yeah, I think there's a, a journalist that um, kind of earned his trust, uh, like a local Yorkshire Evening Post journalist that earned his trust over the course of a couple of years and then was kind of invited to this kind of Friday morning club stuff with serving police officers. And Savile would sit there in his armchair and read out these letters from from women. So I think the police definitely knew what was going on. If they didn't know what they were going on, if they didn't know what was going on when Savile was reading out these letters, then they definitely did when. Working down in Surrey, where that school was, where he worked in the 50s and 60s, Savile were contacted by two women making a complaint about Savile. And the journalist passed that to the police in London, who passed it to the police in West Yorkshire. And nothing came of it. And I don't think it's even on record, is it? I mean, it's no. vanished like that. It, so it's, it's very, very, very uh, convenient. It's clear that they're all sort of uh, starstruck by him. I mean, you're being invited to this really famous person's apart- penthouse apartment once a week. It was clear that they weren't sort of, they weren't digging for anything, these journalists or the police officers. They were sort of going along with it because he's this big, well-known celebrity. So let's just, let's just go along with this. We're being invited along. Let's just enjoy this, take this experience in. They're not, they weren't digging for a story, were they? Ironically, she wasn't actually doing a job. She's right in no. front of her. You know, do your job. No. That's your job. He called that, he called that, was it my good news lady? He called that yeah. journalist. So basically, she's not a PR person because she's an actual journalist working for a paper, but she basically was. Keep the bad stories out, but the good stories in and anything else, c'est la vie. Well, I remember in the Louis Theroux documentary, I'm pretty sure it was in like up in Scotland, Jimmy Savile got some sort of injury or something. And he called up someone from the press to tell them about his injury and make sure it was put in the papers that he was like, I can't remember whether he's he tried to tell them he was doing some sort of charity run or something like that. He tried to make it out that however he'd done it, it was this really sort of noble cause or something, where in reality, I think he'd twisted his ankle or something. I can't remember. But it was clear that he had people on the phone that he'd call up to try and get these positive stories in the press. And so I wasn't at all surprised to see that she was someone who was called his good news girl or something like that. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because he had these people in the in the industry under his wing and yet there was this kind of conscious effort from the early 90s to get the stories of these women that had started to come forward in the late 80s into the, the national media in order to get more people to come forward, which is ultimately what happened in, in 2009, 2010 after his death. But he was nearly exposed in the early 90s, wasn't he? When I think two young girls from that school down in, in, in Surrey came forward to a journalist and they filed the report with the police and they wanted to run the, the story in a, a newspaper and then the, the girls backed out because they thought that nobody nobody would believe them. I mean, who could blame them with the cult of, cult of personality around Savile? But even then, he, he, he lawyered up, didn't he, straight away, which is not necessarily the act of a, somebody that's got nothing to hide. But the lawyer came out with some interesting stuff, didn't he, after he realised what was what and had a, had a couple of chats with Savile. And really saw the side to him that, that we all know now, but definitely didn't back then, which is, is, is very interesting. 
I think the lawyer clearly knew something, didn't he? But it seemed like there was a few times where there was that moment of, oh, this, you know, something might happen here. They might get the story out there, and either either the people backed out because they didn't want their families to be affected, or um, the police didn't follow up and didn't do their job, or they just didn't think that anyone else was coming forward, or they didn't want to be the only ones, didn't want to go to trial. It's a real shame that, it, that something couldn't have happened whilst he was alive. Uh, but one thing. I wanted to mention was how religious he was and, and clearly religion played a huge part in his life and um, it seems to me pretty clear now that he was doing the charity work to offset the horrific crimes that he was doing to me that seems pretty clear I think all the charity work he did was to almost counteract this sort of horrific stuff that he'd done so that when he got to the pearly gates and St Peter judged him as to whether he should go to heaven or hell he could unveil this list of all the good things and interestingly he actually said that he actually yeah, came out yeah. and openly said it I mean why did anybody go hang on what whoa what's all the bad stuff he talked about there what's all the yeah. bad stuff whoa can we just go back there Jimmy why did we bring the, him up on that with the backdrop of about 20 to 30 to 40 years of rumors about the guy being a pedo and he's out there and he said um let's hope God really doesn't judge sinners a or something like that he said that didn't he like the, the word for word something words to that effect he said when somebody says that after being accused of being a nonce for 40 years your ears should be pricking up and yet back then, what did people think they, the, what were the bad things that he was doing? Like what? It makes me laugh though. In the interviews with police, he said something along the lines of, I've never done anything bad to anybody in all my life. But then in interviews, like publicly, he'd, he'd always allude to these terrible things that he'd done and, th- and this kind of thing. He'd never say specifically what it was, but he'd sometimes allude to it or claim that, oh, I hope he goes easy on sinners, that kind of thing. I think that is actually... Uh, one of the lines that was read out at his funeral. I hope he really does take it easy on sinners. When up before before everything came out, that was that was the one of the lines that was said at his funeral by the person doing the funeral. I've never seen something age so well. Actually, the thing that aged worse than that was the inscription on the tombstone. It was good. It was good while it lasted. Yeah, that's he's taking the piss, isn't he? He's he taking is. the piss at that point. He's taking the piss. I know, honestly, Shocking. there's loads of stuff Shocking. like that, though. Like he, he would say things like, um, nobody will have an easy ride to get into heaven. And it's like, well, what, what are you alluding to there, Jimmy? Like, what, why why wouldn't you have an easy ride to get into heaven? You've raised tens of millions of pounds for charity. What is it? What's it that's, that's counteracting that? Tell us, like, why was nobody saying these things? Why was no one you know, pinning that on him directly? Just sort of allowed him to sort of casually say these things. Yeah, and people are right when they say, like, you look at the clips from his funeral and people lined the streets of leads as if he was a royal figure didn't mm. they like as if it was some kind of state funeral i imagine people were taking the day off work or whatever to go visit his his open open casket but he had his uh, coffin so where we had a sixth form prom wasn't it, it? was that we was had same our hotel prom at familiar. the queens yeah that's where it was it was <laughs> our sixth form prom that's where I jimmy know. was laid to rest <laughs> And then you've got thousands of people filing in and out just to just to glance at this wooden coffin, I imagine, or whatever. And his final cigar as well, there, just on the side. Yeah, that's that's good of him, wasn't it? His final cigar. That's how I remember him. I don't remember that being at our prom, but I mean... <laughs> no, it's a shame, really. It would be nice to have that in the all traces of that are gone, but it, it does. It speaks to, to the cult of personality that he had, and people turning up in Jimmy Savile fancy dress to the funeral is yeah. quite funny. Like bizarre and people are like oh, what? why did you like Jimmy oh it was Jimmy wasn't he it's like everybody knew him probably never met him and there's people at the funeral going why are you, why are you? oh well, he was Jimmy Savile wasn't he oh, Jimmy or whatever crazy to look back on but there obviously was a conscious effort 
outwardly to portray a certain image, to perpetuate this kind of what he was doing behind the scenes and inwardly to get into heaven, essentially to outweigh the bad that he was doing. Yeah, um, that, that was really clear. I mean, I just, I can never get my head around how obvious like some of the things that he was saying was. I mean, things like I'm feeding every girl's school in the country. I live in Glencoe. We kidnap ladies and sell them. He just, you know, saying stuff like that is just quite out there mm-hmm. things for this charitable guy to be saying. Mm-hmm. He was once asked, um, what are you up to at the moment, Jimmy? Not getting caught. That was his response. Not getting caught. Like, that's him just really taking the mick at that point, isn't it? He was quite old at this point as well. Like, that's him going, yeah, come on then. I'm, I'm 80 now. Like, come on. Not getting caught. That's it's, what I'm up to. It's shocking. I do feel in a way that he knew that it would all come out after he died. And that's why he wanted it was good while it lasted on his gravestone, a tombstone, just to take the piss. I think, yeah. I think he knew... Because essentially he got away with it forever. For as long as he was alive, he got away with it. 400 people have come forward since spanning, uh, accusing him of, of crime spanning from I think it was 1995 until 2009. So there's scope there for a lot. Yeah. 55, yeah. What did I say? 95. No, he's far worse than that. <laughs> he was at it for way longer than that. 1955 to, to 2009 it was so there's scope for a lot more people to come forward as if the 400 that have come forward isn't already bad enough he probably knew that the chances are at least one person would say something after he'd gone and i think he's his two fingers up to everybody to take the piss was yeah put this on the make sure you put this on the tombstone it's actually shocking yeah, I mean, blood boiled. No wonder they had to get rid of the tombstone overnight. Like as soon as it all started coming out, they were like, they was, we'll shift this straight away. Straight well, away. maybe he was just dangling the carrot more and more as he got older and older, I think, because he sort of, I think he got some enjoyment out of it as well. Because again, it adds to that whole sort of power thing of, I know something that you don't know, or you're lacking this sort of knowledge. I'm in control of this. And so I think he was getting some joy out of it as well, not the, the people, the public not knowing the real him. And so he began to dangle the carrot more and more mm. as the years went on and get a bit more risky because he had nothing to lose. He was in his 80s at this point and nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah I feel like um not, not familiar with the psychology behind this and all the true crime stuff, but usually people that do this for so long enjoy getting caught, don't they? There's a similar, I wonder if we'll ever do a podcast on as a Harold Shipman, the doctor All right. mm-hmm. that killed off loads of old women by giving dodgy doses. And he got away with it for so long that he started to get bored of it. He just started um, composing women's wills for them before they die and then give them an overdose and then sign the death certificate. And he put those, the, the, the final time he actually got caught, he made a will for one of his patients and said, yeah, 325,000 pounds in savings give that to Dr. Shipman and nothing for the family because he just got bored. He just wanted to get caught, right? Just wanted yeah. to get caught. And I feel like Savile towards the end was like that. It was like you, like you say, when you're in your 80s, you've got nothing to lose and it's probably having a bit of fun with it in a, in a crude kind of sense. But people do enjoy being caught, don't they? These, you know, these serial killers and murderers and adults and whatever. Do yeah, because they, they want their moment of being like, yeah, look, look how long this went on for and you didn't know. You didn't have a clue it was me. Look at that. I was hiding in plain sight. They want that sort of victorious moment of being paraded through the, the, the public or whatever or in front of the public eye. And I think that, that was probably the case with the Yorkshire Ripper as 
well. Maybe that's why him and Sample got along so well because they had that sort of that that feel, that same sort of feeling, or they're on the same wavelength in some sort of way. Um, but it was interesting how in, in 2007, investigation was launched and Jimmy Savile was actually interviewed in 2007. So I think four years before he died. Um, and he had, uh, and he said in the interview, I have a collection of senior police officers in Leeds. I give them all my wordo letters and they take them back to the station. He was hiding in plain sight at this point. And then he goes on to say, if these claims disappear, they disappear. If it doesn't disappear, then you, young lady, the police officer that's interviewing him, will finish up at the Old Bailey just like everyone else. So he was threatening this police officer who was yeah. doing the interview. You'll end up at old, the Old Bailey like everyone else. I mean, did the police officers not go, oh, it's a bit suspect. Why aren't you threatening us here? Can they not get him on that? Is that allowed? Yeah, like a, a, a defensive. He was lashing out, wasn't he? That interview, we see about different sides in where he's interrupting and lashing out and, and, and whatnot. Very not, not cool, not calm and not collected at all. Not necessarily behaving like somebody that's an innocent man, but it's it's not enough to, to lock somebody up. It's the way he just like nonchalantly bats off these claims by being like, oh, we're coming up to Christmas these women that are coming forward just want a bit of money for their Christmas presents, like classic kind of gaslighting, if you will, or whatever. And then, yeah, it's on to the next question. I mean, I don't I think, think the police, police weren't buying it at that point, though. I think that, that they, they knew. Mm, uh, I, I think probably they've got yeah. a whiff of it by that point. Just, I mean, it only taken them, you know, 50 years, so fair play to them. <laughs> uh, they got there eventually. To me, I, I, I imagine him as being sort of waiting for that moment a little bit. I imagine he had a few things on the back burner that he would say in order to try and worm his way out of that. I even think, you know, one of his, I think one of his associates or someone that was close to him, I think she even said, even if Jimmy Savile was alive today, he'd still found a way to worm his way out of those allegations. Which I think is interesting because yeah. would those people have come forward had he not died? Had he lived another 10 years, would it have taken another 10 years for them to come out? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I'm looking at it and I'm thinking the variables that are, are at play. Did he get caught because he died and women started coming forward? Or did he get caught because these women that thought that they were living alone for so long and that they were the only ones that had been abused and that they didn't actually know or come into contact with, with anybody else that had been abused by him, even if they might have existed? had these internet forums, you know, the Friends Reunited and things like that, where people from schools come along and all these girls from the school are saying, Savile used to visit, he was a creep, he was a perv. Oh, he did this to me. Oh, he did this to me. And then it snowballs. And then they realise that there's a case here. He died at the right time, I feel. I feel like when people say, oh, people only started coming out because he died, I think it's not true. I think that people started to realise and connect the dots and reach out to other people via the internet, which gets a bad rap. But in this case... I think it's shown that it's fit for purpose in this sense because you've got this forum and people are bonding over the networking over the fact that, that, that they have these things that, that, that were done to them. I dare say if he was still alive today, he'd be banged up. I know he had a way with words or whatever, but I think there's more than enough evidence kind of there. I'm interested though, because I haven't looked to see what Prince Charles's reaction has been to all these allegations coming out that are basically pretty much concrete now. I haven't seen him say, I know he came out after Savile died saying it's a tragedy, but has he come out since and said that he had no idea? Because if so, how? How can somebody be so close mm. to, you know? Because, I mean, if everybody in the showbiz world knows these rumours, once again, it, put, it paints the royal family in a completely incompetent light because they're fraternising with this guy where it's common knowledge amongst people in showbiz that he's a, a pedo. And yet the royal family can't see that. And it, we, we, it was the same with Epstein, wasn't it? And are they just turning a blind eye to this? Are they playing dumb? Are they genuinely incompetent to, to what, what's actually going on out there? Because both Savile and Epstein had these kind of reputations. 
And yet they're, they're fraternizing with the royal family, a family that, that we view as untouchable, that is basically above us in, in, in law and whatnot. Like, are they really that stupid? Are they really that thick? Prince Charles also had another friend, I think it was some sort of um, bishop or someone who ended up being a pedo as well. Like he had another close friend. And so it was like, yeah, there was another, I can't remember his name now, but I'm sure he ended up getting locked up or maybe he died before it all came out. But it was clear that there's a few people around these high ups who, you know, have certainly got up to some horrific things. And it does just make you wonder, are are people turning a blind eye to it or are people allowing it to happen or involved in their own different ways? You know, there's so many different questions, which we'll probably never really get any answers to, to be honest. But before we wrap up, I I did just want to mention one story which my grandma told me recently um, about, when him and my grandma used to go for uh, drives uh, up in Scotland, they'd go on holiday to Scotland uh, around the sort of Glencoe area, actually a place where I used to go on holiday as a kid as well every other year. And um, they were just driving along. They saw Jimmy Savile actually jogging at the side of the road, like jogging along. Maybe he was practicing for a charity run. Maybe he was doing a charity run. I'm not sure. Anyway, my granddad pulls over in a, a lay-by because it's Jimmy Savile. You know, he's a well-known celebrity. He's from Leeds, like my grandparents are as well. And so he pulls over and they have a quick chat with him, with Jimmy and that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and all, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, Jimmy turns to my grandma and says, um, do you want a picture? And my grandma goes, no, I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> rejects him, turns him down. That has aged well. Fair play to him. That has aged well. I bet his ego hated that, didn't it? Because he did really pride himself on the fact that he could talk to anybody and work a room or whatever, and your grandma's just sticking two fingers up to him. Why didn't she want a picture, though? I'm not sure. I don't think she was just... She probably just wasn't that fussed, I don't know. Not bothered by that. Good. He'd want a picture with him, though. He looked like an absolute state, didn't he? He was interesting because he also used to be a judge at um, beauty pageants as well. They used to do beauty pageants back in the day. My grandma was entered into one through work. I mean, this shows you how um, how completely different the culture was back then. She works in an office job, I'm pretty sure, at this point, or something like that. thing that's aged badly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah where she was entered by people at her work to enter this beauty pageant, <laughs> and Jimmy Savile was one of the judges of this beauty pageant, it so was. it's all these sort of young girls, young women, um, and he was one of the judges as well. So it, it just shows the way that he was really integrated into you know, these sort of uh, different areas of society that allowed him nearer to sort of young women, I guess. It's all awfully convenient, isn't it? I mean, he's got himself involved in beauty pageants in all girls' schools, in a mental asylum where if people come forward and say Jimmy Savile did this, nobody's going to believe them, and in a hospital for people that are paralysed, so people that literally can't move if you're foisting yourself on them or whatever, and in, in hospitals because, I mean, Savile didn't care if they were dead or alive. So imagine mm. with an access to a mortuary or whatever. I mean, it was, it was a necrophilia. So he seems to get himself into the right places, doesn't he? Very, very. When he said he was calculated, I don't think he was lying. Yeah, he describes himself as, as tricky, didn't he? And I think he definitely, definitely was. Um, and I think he had up to, uh, they think maybe up to a thousand victims, they, they think, which is, you know, a lot of people. Obviously, not everyone will have come forward as well, I'm sure. Um, but I think it just, like, like as I said earlier in the podcast, I think it just shows a failure of holding these people in power to account. And hopefully we've moved on to some degree nowadays, but I'm sure there's still some elements of that going on, um, unfortunately. But I think we'll wrap it up there. Another another jolly podcast this week. Uh, not quite our <laughs> usual uh, podcast, but we do like to do these more sort of serious ones 
as well, having little chats about things, because uh, I think they can be quite interesting. It's also important to talk about these things sometimes as well. Yeah, I'd say um, they're definitely interesting to talk about and lots to go into. And, you know, verdicts for me, pedo. Yeah, you're saying that confirmed? I'm saying guilty. I'm saying guilty. Oh, interesting. We're turning this into a kangaroo court. Is that what they call it? <laughs> the jury's ruled on uh, Uncle Jim, as people yeah. call him. We'll both rule guilty on that one, I think. That's that decided. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'd really appreciate you dropping a like and hitting that subscribe button as well. And uh, we'll see you next week for another episode. Cheers. See you next week. Bish, bash, bosh.